You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. Uh, I see that uh, we have uh, a crowd here today. Some of you may still be full uh, from Thanksgiving. Uh, some are still traveling back from Thanksgiving, and we have now entered into the season post-Thanksgiving, into the Advent season of Christmas. Now, one of the things, uh, tis the season for Christmas, that I'm not a huge fan of, and I'm sorry if I offend you. If you are sending me one of these, I do not fault you. It's okay. I am not a big fan of Christmas cards. Now, I, I'm sorry for the, all the alls in the room and for the photographers who are like, I make a lot of money doing Christmas cards. Um, I don't fault you for sending those, uh, but a part of me just doesn't like receiving them. And the reason being is because when I receive one of these cards that have this picture of a family or a couple that just seems so perfect, so idealistic, they like they have it all together and how this is just such a joyful season. I hold that card up to the reality of my home and I think this is not my reality, right? It just shows more so how gloomy my own life is. It just shows how I'm not quite living up to the standards of others. And I didn't want to point anyone out in this room and use a card, but I did want to show a picture of a Christmas card that was given out by the royal family. Because uh, we can make fun of them, right? Um, they look so perfect, don't they? Just like everything's just so perfect in their lives. But they're not perfect, right? And in fact, it's just a gentle reminder this morning that even though they are the face of the UK, that the UK can still not defeat us in the World Cup match. <sighs> Amen, right? Hopefully we'll actually win one. Now, perhaps it's not Christmas cards for you during this season that kind of gets you gloomy, but maybe it's just that you see your friends go on these extravagant vacations during this season. Perhaps a place like what's up here next. Uh, doesn't that just make us feel like we should be there right now with the gloom and the cold and the rainy weather? Perhaps you see a vacation photo like this and you see friends who are living it up in a place and you're thinking, man, that's amazing. And then they, they put a, you know, a, a slogan on the bottom of their picture or they send you a text message and they say, I wish you were here. As if that helps, right? <laughs> it just serves a reminder that I'm not there with you right now. It serves a reminder that you're actually having more fun than me. Hashtag Kevin and Jessica's wedding right now in Malaysia for those of you who have seen the pictures. Maybe it's a picturesque vacation or a picture of a perfect family that just reminds you that you don't have it all together in life or shows you that maybe people are having more fun or more joy in life than you. The reason I mentioned this this morning is because there are certain parts of the Bible that have that same effect on my soul. There are certain parts of the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 3 here, that have the exact same effect of an idealistic Christmas card or a picturesque photo of a vacation. Ephesians 3 is one of those places for me where it seems like what Ephesians 3, what Paul is praying here, this grand vision and experience of the Christian life doesn't seem to always marry with my reality. It's as if the Apostle Paul in this prayer, so beautifully written, it's as if he goes on this spiritual vacation. On the spiritual vacation, he sees this panoramic view of God and he captures it somehow. And he says, I wish you were here with me to experience this. And sometimes in our souls, we think that's just not something that's in my reach. The life that he describes here, being filled with the power of the Spirit, comprehending the breadth and the length and the depth and the width of God's love, being filled with the fullness of God, God doing more abundantly than all that we ask or think, just seems like that's somehow out of reach for an ordinary Christian like me. And perhaps today you're feeling that. 
Perhaps in your soul you're feeling like, I just can't experience that kind of Christian life in my own life. Well, if that is you this morning, then I want to give you a word of encouragement. Because what Paul prays here is precisely what God intends for you. Paul's prayer here is precisely showing us the extents, the lengths to which God has gone to achieve this kind of life for us. Paul's prayer here is that we would delight in something so much bigger than ourselves this morning. Paul's prayer is going to remind us that there is a grander vision for this life than what we can comprehend on our own. And our main idea from this text is simply this, that God is at work in your life. Christian, this morning, if you're discouraged, if you're feeling despair during this season, if you're feeling like you're not just living up, what I want you to see through this prayer this morning is that God, by his spirit, is at work in your life. And that he intends to not only want to work in your life, but as the text will remind us, he is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we can ask or imagine. That God is able to do more with our lives that we can ever capture for ourselves. And so what I hope this text will do for us this morning is to paint a grander picture and vision of what it looks like to live this Christian life than what we currently have. What I hope this text does us is it does send us off to this place where we can see this panoramic view of who our God is and what he has done for us, and we can begin to live in that reality that he has promised us. And so our outline is going to flow straight from the text. Today. We're going to look at this prayer in three ways. First, we're going to look at the context of his prayer. What's the context of this prayer that Paul is praying in the end of Ephesians chapter 3? The content, what is he actually praying? How does God working in the lives of the believers? And then also the conclusion of his prayer, this beautiful conclusion to his prayer this morning. And what we're going to see is this prayer is going to act like a hinge on a door for us in the book of Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians really is, is divided into almost two parts. You can uh, see the first three chapters, and then you'll see the rest of it. And this hinge is this prayer. Like a door, uh, it's going to swing us back first this morning into the promises of what God has done for us. It's going to push us back to finding our identity in Christ, and then it's going to swing us forward to see God at work in our lives so that we can now live as a Christian which is the rest of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, is how do we then take what the, we have rooted in us and actually apply it to our lives. And so it's going to be a hinge for us in this letter. So let's go ahead and dive in to the context of this prayer. Verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So begs us to ask the question, what is the reason that Paul is praying? If he says, for this reason... If you notice, he's said this phrase already in chapter 3. He said it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason, and then he all of a sudden pauses and pumps the brake in the middle of his sentence in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, verse 1, and he goes through this digression of thought of his personal ministry. It's as if, as if Paul's writing this, and all of a sudden he says, oh yeah, I forgot, I, I should mention this. <laughs> right, right? Let me just pause for a moment and go on this digression of, of, of my personal suffering, my personal ministry. And then he gets back to this reason again. He says, okay, again, for this reason, I'm bowing my knees in prayer. What is the reason? Well, we have to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And what Paul has built on is this wonderful unity that God's people now have. This unity that the Jew and the Gentile have been brought together into this new community in Christ. And Paul says, for this reason, for the reason that you have been brought near to Christ, that you have been brought together in this new community through faith in Jesus, I pray this prayer. For this reason, you've experienced all the blessings and the promises of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, this grand vision of what God has done for you. I pray this prayer. 
that you've experienced the resurrection power, that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and you've been made alive in Christ. You were once enemies of God and one another, but in Christ, those dividing walls have been demolished. The cross of Christ is like a battering ram that have torn down, demolished the vertical and the horizontal divides in this world. And we not only have access now to God through Jesus Christ by his spirit, we also now have unity with one another as brothers and sisters in the church. And so that's that hinge, right? This prayer is that hinge. For this reason, all the things, the promises that we've seen in Ephesians, now I pray this prayer for you, that God would be at work in your life. And what is Paul's disposition as he prays this prayer? He says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees. We might say that Paul is explaining for us humility in his prayer. That he bows his knees before the Father. That all the truths of the gospel in chapter 1 and 2, Paul knows these things intimately in his soul. He knows that it is only by the grace of God that he has been rescued from his sins. And it stirs up a heart of gratitude for Paul that drops him to his knees in this prayer. Now, we might think of bowing our knees as a common posture of prayer, but it actually was quite unique. In first century uh, Judaism, there, you would rarely drop to your knees in prayer. In fact, the more common way of praying is to stand and look up to the heavens. That's why in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, and when you pray, standing, <laughs> right? He assumes that the posture that we would normally take is one of standing with our eyes toward heaven. It's very rare, only one other place in uh, the New Testament do we see Paul actually bowing his knees in prayer, other than this moment. Now, why is his posture this way? Well, to bow your knees in prayer would symbolize something. It would symbolize a moment where you've either been just shattered or broken by something or that something has just come over you. In other words, what it's conveying here is a really deep sense of emotion from Paul. That Paul has been overwhelmed with this gratitude of his God. And it literally brings him to his knees. He is filled with emotion as he prays for this church. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for us because as we think about prayer in our lives, we have to think about prayer first and foremost as worship. It's not just something we do. It's, it's, a, it's an act of worship. That we're moved with emotion because of our gratitude, our sense of what God has done, our sovereign Father, what He has accomplished for us. As one pastor says, prayer is not like a holy pinata. You don't just whack God and hope that goods fall out of Him, right? We have a sense that when we come in prayer, we have this disposition, just like Paul, of humility. That we're coming before a sovereign Father, the Father who has brought us into His family. And that alone should drive us to our knees, just like Paul. But notice that Paul's humility is also characterized by a confidence that God is going to work. He says that I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. He may grant you. Paul has a confidence that he can come to God and pray to God because God is his Father. And he is his child. And because of what Christ has done, we have this confidence as well. When we go before the Father, we don't just come in reverence and humility. We come with confidence that we get to talk to our Father. It's not just throwing up a Hail Mary hoping that he answers us. That we can pray through the Spirit that intercedes for us. We can have a confidence because we are in Christ. We can approach him, not because we're worthy, but because Christ has made us worthy to approach our Father who is rich, Paul says according to the riches of his glory. God has these inexhaustible resources for us. He is a good father. 
And Paul comes and he has this disposition of humility and confidence that God is going to work. And he drops to his knees. And who does he have in mind when he prays for, uh, for this prayer? Well, I don't want to overlook this. Again, Paul doesn't have an individual in his mind when he prays this prayer. Who does he have in mind? He has the church. We've said this time and time again, and I, I think we're going we're gonna to beat this like a drum every single week. The book of Ephesians is about the church, right? It is teaching us who we are as the people of God. And when Paul prays this prayer, he has the church in mind. He prays to the God who is the father of who? Of every family in heaven and on earth his name. In essence, he's saying God is a family God. He's not an individualistic God. And he prays later that we would comprehend with all the saints the love of God, right? With all the Christians. He's not just praying for an individual here. He's praying that the church would know this together. And then later at the end, he's going to say something very incredible. At the very end, he's going to say, to him be glory where? Where is he going to receive glory? In the church. Paul, time and time again, is going to remind us that our faith is not individualistic. Our faith is that we're, we're bought into something. We are a part of a community. And so as he prays, what is on his mind? The church. He is thinking about these truths and how these truths apply to the people of God. The Bible will not allow us to have that kind of dichotomy that we can have a spiritual experience apart from the people of God. Right? As one writer says, to know the full love of God is to know the people of God. Right? We have to be invested in his church. Because that's who has Paul or who Paul has on his mind as he prays. So the context here is that Paul is, is being reminded, right, hinging back to the promises of Ephesians 1 and 2. That is his reason for this prayer. He has on his mind the people of God, the church as he prays, and his disposition is one of humility, coming before his knees to pray this prayer that God would work in the lives of the Ephesians. And that's really where we get to the content of the prayer. You really see this starting in verse 16. He says that according to the riches of glory, he prays this prayer, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying that God would work in the lives of these believers in two specific ways. That as he works in their lives, that they would be strengthened by his power and his love. You notice that? The two emphasis here are his power and his love. To be strengthened with his power through the Spirit, and then everything else kind of builds on that. As we're strengthened through his power and the Spirit, then we will have the ability to comprehend, he says in verse 18, the love of God, and to know, to have this intimate knowledge of his love. And all that kind of ends with this climactic point that we'd be filled with the fullness of God. And so what Paul has on his mind here is that well, how is God working in our lives? Well, he's working through his power and he's working through his love. And let's see how these things work in the life of a Christian. First, his power. He says that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, what's interesting about this prayer is that he is not teaching anything new to them. This is not Paul trying to teach them something new about the Christian life. He's already taught them about power. He's already taught them about the love of Christ. You can go back to Ephesians 1 and 2 and see that. In Ephesians 1, he tells us that in love, he predestined us for adoption. Ephesians 2, he teaches us that God was rich in mercy. By his great love, he has made us alive. 
Ephesians 1, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power, that all of his might is working in us, giving us resurrected power. And he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that that power is working in us, that we are raised with Christ. And so these are not new concepts for the life of the believer, but what Paul is wanting to, to display in his prayer is that these truths would sink de- deep down into their heart, would take root into something. And so he, he begins with power. Now, again, as we studied in the very beginning of this uh, the study in, in Ephesians, that the city of Ephesus was a place of power. It was considered a very powerful city, centered around this temple to Artemis. It was much like a, a modern-day D.C., right? A city of prestige, a city of power, a melting pot of sorts where people would come, and they, w- they would try to build up their life, their career there. Paul understands the context of, his, uh, of the spiritual environment in which this Ephesians church is uh, operating in. And so he emphasizes time and time again this idea of power. And we might think, well, the Ephesian church probably had moments where they looked at the world around them and thought this is insurmountable. Perhaps they looked around and thought, well, I don't know if we have confidence to really live this faith in a world that doesn't believe in the church. Perhaps they too struggled with rooting these truths in their hearts. Perhaps they struggled living a life worthy of the calling that they've been presented. And so Paul prays for them. He says that you would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Now, where does he say this power is working? He says it's working in their inner being. For Paul, the inner being is much more important than the outer being. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably spend more time on our outer being than our inner being, don't we? It's very natural for us to think about our outer being first instead of our inner being. But the Bible tells us something about our outer being. It tells us that our outer being is wasting away. Maybe you've experienced that already. Maybe your hair is thinning a little bit. Maybe you're starting to get those back aches and muscle aches that you didn't know were there. A few weeks ago, I tried to play on the flag football team with some of you, and for about three days later, my knees were buckling <laughs> as I walked, right? My body is breaking down. Second Corinthians 4 teaches us this, that the outer person, Paul writes, is perishing, but the inner being is being renewed day by day. This inner being, Paul says, is what's happening underneath, deep inside of us. We might say it's our, it's our personal conscience, it's our moral being. It's often referred to in the Bible as our heart. He's saying this inner being is what is important, and this is where God powerfully works. But notice again, Paul is assuming that we need to be strengthened in our inner being. So what does that mean? That means the prerequisite for this prayer is that we need strengthening. It's that we are weak. And so today, if you're feeling that way, this prayer is for you. If you feel like you're plateauing in your faith, this prayer is for you. If you feel immature right now, this prayer is for you. If you're battling sin and feel like you're on the losing side, this prayer is for you. The prerequisite for God strengthening us is our need, our desperation for him in our lives. And Paul is making the assumption by praying this that we are not strong enough on our own in our inner being. That we need something inside of us. That we need to be strengthened by his spirit. See, the worst thing we can do in the Christian life is try to fake it. The worst thing we can do in the Christian life is act as if we are not uh, of a need of him, that we're not in desperation, to pretend that we don't need strengthening in our inner being. When I was in college, um, my truck got put in the shop for a few weeks, and so my dad uh, loaned me one of his company vehicles to drive around. It was his old Suzuki SUV, uh, and it had two issues with it. One being sometimes the speedometer would stop working, uh, which was, uh, praise God, I didn't get a speed ticket uh, while I was driving this. Uh, and the second thing is that the gas gauge never worked. 
So uh, as you drove down uh, the street, you would have to record on the odometer how many miles you were driving uh, to make sure you didn't run out of gas, which I did twice. <laughs> I miscalculated twice. Right? But what was tricky is every time I was driving down the road with this car is that the gas gauge would always say full. It never moved off a of full. And so I would just assume mentally that everything was okay, and then I started seeing the odometer run, and then I realized, oh my gosh, I got like five miles or, or less uh, before I ran out of gas. And I think about that in my life, in my own life, and how often I, I try to live my life that way, right? With my outer being, I just express that I'm full. I, I'm living on full, but really, in my inner being, I'm empty. In my inner being, I'm in such a great need. And there's nothing good about trying to fake it. To live a life where in our outer being we say we're full, while in our inner being we are in great need or empty. Paul says that there's something that can strengthen you if you are in need this morning. And he says that it's the Spirit's power at work in us. And notice what the Spirit's power does within us. Verse 17. The purpose is so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And when the Spirit is working in our inner being, in our, in our hearts, what happens is that Christ begins to dwell in our hearts by faith. Those are like two sides of the same coin. The Spirit's working our inner being and Christ dwelling in our hearts. But you might ask the question, well, why is Paul praying for Christians that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts if we are a Christian? Right? Don't we already have him in our lives? Why would Paul pray that, that Christ would dwell in our hearts if we are believers? Well, I think the answer to that is actually in the word that he uses for dwelling. He's not talking about a temporary dwelling. He is talking about a permanence, a permanent dwelling. In essence, what he is praying here, that Christ may have his home in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a cheap platitude. I've asked Jesus in my heart uh, that he just comes and, and he's a part of my life. Paul is saying that Christ takes up residence in our hearts through faith, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And some of us, I know, may have a, a strange view of, 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 of Christ, or maybe we've thought of this in our own lives, that we treat Jesus as if he comes to live inside of us, like, like he's one of those like, distant housemates we had, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, like that one housemate that you never saw. <laughs> they kind of went in your room, uh, went out of the room, maybe you saw them, maybe they lived there, maybe they didn't, you never really saw them, they just kind of kept themselves. And oftentimes, we kind of treat Christ like that in our lives. Just, you, can, you can be a part of my life, but I've I got to keep you at a distance, but when Christ takes up residence in our hearts, the scriptures tell us here, he doesn't just come in as a renter. He comes in as the owner-occupier. He moves in and he gets to work in our hearts. He makes his presence known. It is his place now. And that is why, as a Christian, we should expect that God would work in our lives, that he would change us. Because the prayer here is that not just that Christ would come and live in our hearts. The prayer Paul is praying here is that Christ would come and he would reign in our hearts that he would settle down and make his home in our hearts. And as we grow in faith, what God is doing is a renovation project in our hearts. What he is saying here is that the Spirit can come and strengthen you in such a way that Christ begins to do this renovation in your heart. He strips out the old, he throws in the trash, and he begins to bring new priorities, new habits, new desires that grow inwards in you. When Christ moves in, we are all in bad repair. But he comes, and through his power, he can change you. And that is why Paul prays for power in the life of a believer. That Christ can work in your life to change you in a way that only he can. That God alone can come inside of you and transform you into a home where his character can be put on display. He can come in and strengthen you in only way that he can 
so that you might display the very characteristics of Christ. So he prays for this church that they would experience the power of God that can come in and dwell within the life of a believer and begin to change us from the inside out. But he also prays for us to know his love, to grasp his love, he says. Now, when Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ, that we would begin to grasp the love of Christ in this prayer, he is not praying that the church would love Christ more. Although that's a great prayer. It is a great prayer for us to to say, God, how can we love you more? But that's not what Paul's praying here. Paul is actually praying that they would comprehend how much Christ loves them. That they would comprehend how much he has loved them in the gospel. And you see, when we're able to grasp that, we're able to comprehend just how much Christ loves us, well, that is when we experience change in our lives. That is when we, we, we see that Christ is residing in our heart. He's dwelling in our hearts. And when we understand, we experience that love, it's something that changes us from the inside out. Notice here in, in uh, verse 19, he says that we are to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We are to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's asking God to strengthen these believers to know Christ's incredible love for them. But this is not merely an intellectual understanding of love. He is actually praying that they would experience God's love that they would have a sense of his love, that they would feel his love. He says, this love surpasses knowledge. They say, Paul, well, how do I know something? How can I comprehend something that surpasses knowledge, right? Uh, That's slightly scary for for someone like me because part of my job is to try to explain to you things in the Bible, right? Paul says, this is actually something that surpasses knowledge. It's beyond knowledge. And what Paul is saying here is logic begins to break down when we try to define just how much Christ loves us. Words will fall short to describe just how much he loves us. And perhaps that is precisely the point of this prayer. That there's no textbook that can fully teach us the love of God in Christ. That there is no study that can supply all the information we need to fill, be filled with the measure of God's fullness. There is no prestigious institution, no matter how great it is, that can fully teach us to comprehend the breadth and the width and the length and the depth of God's love. And this is what Paul is saying here, is that it is a gift of God's grace. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life that Jesus can be made known to us in this real way, that we can experience his love. It is not through our intellect, it is not through our wisdom, it is through the Holy Spirit, resurrection power in our lives. Which means, again, this, this knowledge cannot just be up here. It's not just a head knowledge. As John Stott, one, uh, a famous uh, theologian and Christian author, he wrote this one time. He says that Christian theology sometimes can breed spiritual tadpoles. And what he means by spiritual tadpoles is tadpoles are the littlest creatures with the biggest heads and not much else. <laughs> and certainly there are some Christian tadpoles around whose heads are bulging with knowledge, but that's all they have. And he says, this is not the type of knowledge that I'm seeking for the church. I want this knowledge to be heart knowledge. I want this knowledge to be inner being knowledge because inner being knowledge, heart knowledge has implications. It means that Christ and what we know about Christ cannot just reside in our thinking only. It means that when we see and understand the love of Christ, it affects our whole being. It overflows to our actions. When Jesus takes up residence in our hearts, it means that through the spirit moving in a way that allows us to understand him deeper, it affects utterly everything about us. It transforms us from within. 
the effects here of knowing the love of God that surpasses knowledge is that truth about God's love descends into our core being. That that truth about God's love intellectually that we know descends into our being about the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't just know it anymore. We sense it. We feel it. We taste it. We see it. We touch it. We hear it. It is something to know God's love. It's a whole other thing to taste and see that he is good. It's one thing to be able to comprehend intellectually who God is and what he has done for us on the cross. It is a whole other thing to have it on our hearts, to sense it in our inner being. And that is what Paul is praying. That the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives would take information about who God is and would make it sensation on our hearts, experience it in our souls. Let me give you an example of how this works in our lives. Words matter a lot to us. When we hear things from other people, especially people that are close to us, it puts more than just intellectual knowledge in our minds, it puts impressions on our hearts. Like I, I can remember uh, a day when I had a, a baseball coach who uh, told me one day uh, that, that I would never play on the varsity team, right? This is my like Michael Jordan moment, okay? Um, but I was not good, so it didn't work. I mean, he, he literally told me in words that I'm not good enough. And I remember how that didn't just affect me here, but it transformed my heart. It began to sink deeply and press upon my heart that maybe I'm not good enough. It was so vivid that even years later, it had a controlling effect on my life, right? And perhaps you've had that happen in your life, where someone has said, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a father, maybe it's a mother who has said things like that, and it's pressed upon your heart. And then you get to the Bible, and you see that God our Father says, no, I chose you, I love you, I predestined you as adoption because of what Christ has done for you. When I look at you, I see you as beautiful because of what Christ has done. And you think, well, that's great to, to, be it, uh, to have it up here, but how do we get that on our hearts? This is what Paul's writing that through the Spirit strengthening us, that we can begin to comprehend just how much God loves us. And how does that practically play out? Well, practically in my life, what that looked like was I begin to believe what God said about me more than what that coach said about me. I begin to sense and feel and taste what God has said about me more than what others are saying about me. That is what happens when the love of Christ is pressed upon your heart. When you begin to experience and know a love that surpasses knowledge, that it goes deep down in us, as verse 18 says, that we're rooted in it. An agricultural term, right? That we're rooted in it, that it, it, it digs deep roots into our soul. So that moment by moment, we can know that we are loved by God, and then we're grounded in it. We're built up in it. It becomes the foundation in which we now live our lives, so that, verse 18, we may have the strength, and only through the Spirit, to comprehend with all the saints, with the church, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. In essence, what is the limitless dimensions of how much God loves you? Now, Paul is giving us a portrait, a picture of the Christian life in which we can know his power in our lives at work by transforming us, by Christ dwelling in us, and he's given us a picture of what it looks like when God works to press his love upon our souls and our hearts in such a great way that we're able to comprehend this love and experience it and taste it and see it in our lives. And then he concludes with this wonderful benediction in this prayer. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever, ever. Amen.
I love how Paul speaks so clearly to our human experience here. Because I don't know about you, when I pray sometimes, I have a hard time knowing what to ask God. I have a hard time even being able to think about where to start. And Paul says, let me give you a bigger vision of who God is here. That God is so able that he can do far beyond what you ever ask of him and what you could ever imagine before you even imagine it, before you can even articulate it. God just doesn't, or Paul doesn't say God is able to do more. He uses a very unique phrase here to say he can do far more, but not just far more, but that he will do abundantly far more. He is making it very clear that we cannot comprehend just how able God is to work in our lives. Do you feel right now that you are on the losing side with sin in your life? This prayer reminds us that God is able to work in your life far beyond what you can comprehend. Do you feel like you're in a relationship right now that just feels upside down, just doesn't feel like it's heading in the right direction, you don't know where to turn? God's reminding us here that he is able to heal and fix that which is broken far beyond we could ever imagine. Do you feel like you're in a moment where you're just full of disappointments in this life, like nothing is turning out for you? God is promising us here that he is able to do far more abundantly and and satisfy you in a way that you can never be satisfied with anything else. He is able. That is the picture that Paul is painting here. And how does he work in our lives? Well, notice it is by his power at work within us. Paul says God is not excusing us, he's not uh, bypassing us, but God is delighting to work through us. And according to his power at work within us, God wants to accomplish the great things through you, not despite you, for the glory of his name in the church and in Christ. Today, are we living our lives with just too small of a picture of who God is and what he has done for us? Are we looking off in the distance to what Paul wrote here and says, that's just not reality for me? Do we see the the picturesque postcard and Christmas card of God's love for us and his power displayed and say, that's just not something attainable for me? May this prayer remind us this morning that in Christ, this is the life that he promises to believers, that we would experience his power and know his love. So as we come to the Lord's table, let me just remind us of two things that can help us as we think about in our lives. How do we know that God is working in this way? How can we experience in such a real way God's working in our lives? Well, number one, recognize our need for him, our desperation for him. We are incapable of living this type of life on our own. And the beauty of the Christian faith is that it's a gift to us, meaning that we just don't live for the experience of a, of a spiritual moment, but we get the source himself, God. He is the one we need, and he makes himself available to us. And today, if you're in need, Jesus promises us that he will meet you in your need. He is there for you. You just don't have to have the vibes and the feels of what it looks like to live a Christian life. You can have the source himself, Jesus Christ, dwelling within you. And secondly, as we come to the Lord's table, let's meditate on just how much Christ loves us this morning. Man, during Thanksgiving, what a great thing to do. And to fill our hearts with gratitude with just how much God loves us. You know, one of the greatest challenges in life is admitting that, that we're not enough, that we need something greater. Oftentimes we think we are enough. Oftentimes we think we have the power within us. And Paul says that there is a strength that we can have through the power of his Holy Spirit 
to comprehend something so much bigger than ourselves. And what is bigger than ourselves is the breadth and the height and the love and the depth of Christ's love for us. That when we look to the cross during communion, we're reminded of the breadth of his love this morning. That he says when he is on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. And what he means by that is that there's no one in this room and there's no one in this world that he has created that is too far gone or has done something that he cannot reach with his love. That is the breadth of his love. And the length of his love is displayed on the cross. You know, the Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means like for ages, Christ knew that he had it on his heart that he was going to come and redeem you. And even though when he came to this earth and we scorned him and we misunderstood him, he still was relentless with an everlasting love for us. That is the length of his love. For ages, he has loved us and never gave up on us. What is the depth of his love this morning on the cross? It is that when he is on the cross and he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He enters in a low moment in his life, a a depth that none of us have ever descended to. A moment where he was forsaken by his own father and the wrath was poured out on him. So as Micah says, that our sins can be buried to the depths. You know what the height of God's love is this morning for you? That Jesus doesn't just say, I will redeem you, but that one day you will be with me. And my love for you is so great that, as he says in the Gospel of John, I am preparing a place for you, and in my Father's house there are many rooms, and you will be with me. God's love is so massive and so great for us this morning. And as we come to our time of communion, if God will go to that length of dimensions to love us, And if God is able, by the power of his spirit, to dwell in our hearts and change us, and if God is able to break down the dividing walls and unite us as one family under his his lordship and his kingdom, if he is able to do those things, then what is holding us back this morning from believing that God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think? Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.